our war on terror begins with al-Qaeda, but it does not end there. It will not end until every terrorist group of global reach has been found, stopped, and defeated. Hello, everyone. You have, of course, just heard the sinister-sounding voice of George W. Bush in a clip taken from James Corbett's documentary series, The Secret History of Al-Qaeda. That's the subject of this interview. In addition to asking James about the narrative of that history, I'll also inquire as to what he considers the big, outstanding questions of 9-11 to be, and whether the truth movement is rising to the challenge of meeting them. I start off by asking if, after all these years of research, producing this series has led him to see the events of September 11th in a different light. I would not say seeing it in a new light, per se. Um, Seeing it in a deeper understanding, maybe, might be the way to look at it. Um, Because, obviously, I think the same sorts of questions that I was having in those early days are the same kinds of questions that I'm still thinking about all these years later, just in a more uh in a deeper sense in a deeper understanding coming from with a lot more research under my belt now um so uh, some of the things that i found fascinating back in the day like operation northwoods are things that as you'll notice still make an appearance in this documentary because i still think it's interesting to think and talk about and i still don't think enough people know about it so uh, yes i mean in a sense i mean full circle and all of that it's not like i've come close to the circle it's not like it's done and it's not like i've come to some sort of bold new revelation or something in these in these ways it's just that i think after 15 plus years of study i think i have quite a bit more to say about it and in more detail than i did back then okay having started with that kind of broad open philosophical question i'll just narrow down and do a bit of narrative of what's in there so one thing i appreciated about the documentary was the way it started i felt it started in a place where People coming from different perspectives who maybe have different levels of interest in this, and maybe some people are really on board with the false flag terror thing, maybe some people are interested in the history of Al-Qaeda, but aren't. I thought the documentary started at a meeting point where everyone could get on board that train and go on the journey, and that is with a broader geopolitical context of how empires, and we're initially talking specifically about the British Empire, use divide and rule strategies, and how dividing the Islamic world against itself, dividing... uh, Muslims against Hindus in the Indian context, or dividing Muslims against secular nationalists in the Middle East context. Um, that that's a thing I think everyone can go, oh yeah, I get that. Could you could you maybe elaborate on your research into that aspect of it, please? Well, yes. Uh I thought it was important to start with the context because I, I want people to understand that the template essentially that was being used, um, that I I feel was being used in the early days of the creation of what became Al-Qaeda and all of that is a template. It has been used many times before that we have to understand the use of um, political Islam, essentially, um, for political purposes, but in ways that are being engineered from a higher level. And the easiest way to do that is to simply look at the historical precedents for that. So they, as you say, the document documentary starts with centuries in the past, looking at the British Empire and how it has on the record, in by its own admission, um, done this time and again to use divided rule, which obviously is a strategy and tactic that's been talked about since 
Roman times. I mean, it's a it's certainly not a new um, development, but the uh, the British were quite good at it, actually, in keeping a very vast and un- unwieldy empire in line, essentially, um, for centuries. And how did they do this? And and how did they make accommodation with uh, Islam uh, as well as using it as a as a boogeyman? And I, I also wanted to point to that that sort of dual nature of this, that the uh, the threat of Islamic extremism and terrorism could be used as needed in order to uh, justify British military incursion in a given region, or it, the, uh, a deal or accord could be made with Islamic, uh, Islamic extremists in order to justify, uh, well, we have to go in and help these, these poor Islamists who are being routed out by this evil, evil dictator. Uh, again, that, that sort of dual nature of this was also there in the early uh, stages of this. So, um, so uh, there's a lot of very interesting history that's been written about this, but I, I point specifically to the work of Mark Curtis, mm. who uh, wrote a, a really good book about this that I will be going over uh, quite soon. I'll be doing a questions for Corbett where I will be going through all of the various books not all of the books that I use, but a lot of them. And uh, that will definitely be one that features prominently in this, because I think he situates it in um, in that broader context in a way that, as you say, is, I think, easily understandable for people and hopefully gets them to understand the Al-Qaeda picture in its much, much centuries long broader context. Yeah, Mark Curtis's book, Secret Affairs, that was really influential on me in understanding. He, he dug into British foreign policy, British foreign office documents, looking at how the real enemy in the Middle East is a secular nationalist, because they're going to take control of the resources. So we need to balance these forces out against each other. And this is not the 19th century. This is like the 1950s. They're talking about this. So that, that was very eye-opening to seeing how the, the game is played there. Yeah, I think- and he did excellent research, as you say, digging up the foreign office documents um, that I, and I went to try to look and see if I could piece that together afterwards and see if I could find those different documents. But um, he, he was able to get actual access to the real records, which is invaluable. Yeah, he's one of the finest British historians of the, the whole, not just of the, the Islamic angle, but the whole British imperial project. Yeah, outstanding. Um, I think you make an interesting transition in going into the concept of false flag terror, because here's the stepping off point where in some ways I feel like in explaining this, so we're trying to explain something that's kind of unbelievable. And certainly other people find it unbelievable that the nation states would do this against their own people. So you explain that by giving the example of the Levon affair, Operation Susanna, which I think is an interesting one to start with because it's a false flag, but it's being perpetuated by one nationality against another. Could, could you maybe just fill in the, the narrative on that, please? So the Levon affair in the 1950s is an extremely important, I think, event to look at um, because it is one of the one of the few completely historical documented false flag narratives that we we know at least enough about that story to be able to look at it. And it is far enough back in the past now that um, dust has settled on it. Um, but at the time, there were these terror attacks that were happening in Egypt in the 1950s. And what what is going on? Why, you know, how, who, it must be these Muslim extremists or somebody, some sort of enemy of the state that to blame for this. And the the point of the ploy um, that was eventually revealed was that Israeli agents, sleeper cell essentially, had been activated in Egypt to commit these terror attacks, blame them on political extremists of some sort. The Muslim Brotherhood would probably serve as a convenient fall guy, but they weren't necessarily the ones that had to be blamed for it. 
um, but at any rate, some sort of extremists uh, in order to justify ongoing British military presence in Egypt. You don't want to you don't want to give up Egypt and your protectorate of Egypt. It's extremely important because uh, uh, Israel had its own geopolitical ambitions uh, for the region and uh, understood that having Britain there as a military presence, as a ally um, uh, in what could be an enemy state was very convenient for them. So in order to continue that, they um, staged this operation. And um, bits of that came out afterwards in the various uh, uh, follow-up investigations slash cover-up that went on um, to the affair. And I do make note of that and, and some of the source documents that I um, I cite in in the documentary to, to talk about that. But as I say, it is now documented official record. These were attacks that were committed by Israel Israeli sleeper agents that were to be blamed on assorted political extremists for a particular purpose. And I think it's just, it's it's one of those um, things where you, if you go straight into talking about 9-11 was a staged attack or something, I think that's A, too overwhelming for people to understand how such an operation to work. Uh, B, we don't have the signed, sealed documents of, yes, this was the agent and this is the person who did it. So it's not as pat a narrative. And I think people are still too emotionally attached to more recent events. So I think it was a good way of at least trying to broach the subject of how you could um, insert agents into a, a situation in order to stage terror attacks and blame it on an enemy. Well, what I like about it is I feel I could explain that one and the other person would go, oh yeah, I see that. Because you you can see how Jews in Israel, this fledgling Jewish state, not many years after the Holocaust, feeling pressured by Arab nations on all sides, could go, well, we really need to keep the British here. And we can set these bombs off, we can set them off and people will maybe get hurt if people do well you know, that's a that's a risk. And you can get into that mindset and say, oh yeah, I see why they would do that. And they're also doing it to an out group. It's not their in group. They're not killing other Jews in Israel. So you could, it, as, as a jumping in point, I think it's a, a good way to transition into that. So the documentary then runs through the, the whole incident of Afghanistan in the 1980s, Operation Cyclone, and this, I would say, escalating relationship between now the American empire and radical Islam, which runs on beyond the Afghanistan war into tilting the board in the emerging stand countries as they break away from the Soviet Union to ensure that Western commercial business interests will be preferred there and ultimately ends up in in Yugoslavia uh, with the breakup of that country. And along the way, you start to see these terrorist events happening to US targets around the world and in the United States with this initial assassination of Maya Kahani. And then the big one will be the 1993 bombing off the World Trade Center. And I suppose a standard narrative of this is not so much blowback, but this cultural theme we have of the monster that gets off its chains. Like you think you can control a monster, you think you can use it to do your dirty work, but all of a sudden it's in New York City and it's driving a van packed full of explosives into the Trade Center. And that's a continuous theme or excuse for why these things go wrong then. And what we seem to have of all of these terrorist narratives, not from 93 bombing up to 9-11 and beyond, is a narrative that's just unbelievable. It would require so much incompetence at every point. It would require so much uh, of a blindness in perspective taken by law enforcement at every point that it just doesn't seem credible. And I think, I think you say about the 93 bombing specifically that you couldn't make a film with that plot narrative, right? Because it would just be too ridiculous. What, what kind of things did you 
see there that because that's entirely how I felt about it when I looked at it. What kind of things do you see that just really defied imagination with that? Uh, I keep going back to Ali Muhammad because that is the story that's just literally impossible. It is literally impossible for any normal person without intelligence ties to do the things that he did. And the famous quote was from one of his um, uh, superiors when he was in the U.S. Army um, who was talking about his incredible career up to that point in the 1980s, who said, I think you or I would have a better chance of winning the Powerball lottery than an Egyptian major in the unit that assassinated Sadat would have getting a visa, going to California, getting into the army and getting assigned to a special forces unit. And I mean, that's only the beginning of that incredible story, um, as you know, having watched the documentary. So um, things like that, that it it just, it cannot be, it cannot be that Ali Mohammed was not being helped. There is no explanation for that other than there were intelligence agencies that were allowing him to do what he did. The only question in a case like that is why? What was the, what was really going on? Who was working who? And was it really this dastardly Al-Qaeda triple agent who somehow or other managed to dupe everyone that he ever worked with and, and then got away with it for years and years? And then they got him and arrested him. Is that the story? Uh, I, I would need significant convincing on that. And of course, it's a story that doesn't even get raised. So that's one that sticks out to me like a sore thumb. But there are many, many, many examples of that, of people being uh, essentially doing things that are impossible for you or I, if we tried to do some of these things, like hopping on a plane, going to America and just saying, hey, you know, I'm I'm a refugee, let me in. And getting flagged uh, for uh, special handling, because clearly there's something going on here. Arriving, by the way, uh, seated, seated literally right next to someone that they did stop for uh, being a terrorist with literal terrorist manuals in his uh, briefcase or suitcase, all of this. I mean, but hey, they just let him waltz in and uh, completely unmolested. And then immediately he goes and starts collaborating with this cell that go, that's um, working on the World Trade Center bombing. Um, all the while, making phone calls that are being recorded but not being translated or analyzed um, to the person that they stopped as the terrorist on the way into the... Again, it's just, it's ridiculous on top of ridiculous. And um, when we get forward in that narrative to the point of uh, getting towards 9-11 and you get to the things like the deliberate stopping of the information about uh, Al-Maidhar and Al-Hazmi from going from the CIA to the FBI, these sorts of things. We don't even have to speculate about that. We mm. literally know they they literally stepped in and stopped that information from flowing that otherwise would have been available. They, they literally had to step in to stop it from going. So again, the only question is why? Mm. Why did they allow all of this to happen or were they actively participating in it? And I have no doubt there is, there, there could be, story after story of fallback after fallback if they were ever pressed on it. One example of which would be something like what Richard Clark says to Duffy and Novoselsky in that uh, footage that I play, where he's saying that he thinks that the cover-up of the CIA deliberately stopping that information about these uh, two suspected terrorists coming into the U.S., uh, being stopped from going to him. Uh, he says the reason for this, well, probably they were trying to run these guys as agents for the CIA. They were trying to flip them. Didn't work essentially that sort of narrative. Again, that could be one of the fallback narratives of this, but who's having this conversation? 
who is bringing this up, this incredible bombshell information um, to even question um, the narrative that's going on? Of course, uh, pretty much no one, because pretty much no one knows any of this, um, because it is it is a lot more work to try to put these pieces together of this intelligence puzzle than to say, hey, look, look at that explosion. That looks funny. Um, but honestly, I think this is the way forward. This is the way to understand what was really taking place that day, or at the very least to start getting the cover up answers so that we can then interrogate those. Yeah, I'll come on to that in a minute of where people have placed their attention on 9-11 in terms of the truth movement. It, it's fascinating to me that if I mentioned the 93 bombing to people now, the most common response I get, was that that Timothy McVeigh? Fella, is that the thing? And the, no, no, different one, different one, right? People, this is forgotten about the ninety-three bombing, and oh, really? Yeah, you look right. It's, I, I, it's surprising how many people. Just don't. I, I am surprised because obviously I move in very different circles. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I move in those circles too, <laughs> but, but I have a lot of friends yeah, who don't move I, in those you circles. Are right? Either. Yeah. If you if you say the explosion at the World Trade Center, no one is going to think ninety-three. So, I've never, no, I've never. Um, Known what to make of this, right? Because I've heard, I've heard the story that if that bomb had been just a little bit bigger and had been on a pillow, just one over to the right, one trade center could have come into the other, and they could have uh, domino affected across New York, and you could have gone into at least tens, even hundreds of thousands of casualties. It would have been exponentially larger than nine eleven. I've heard other people say, "Nah, that's not very realistic. I would never have done that." And I've just no, I, I know. I think you interviewed. Is it Frederick Whitehurst? I'm just going to pull that name out of the air, of the the um, FBI forensics expert years ago on this and just how yeah. corrupt the forensic science was around that but the the war on terror could have started under the clinton regime in 1993 just falling straight on from the cold war and that's an interesting sort of counter historical kind of position you know that it came that close then it is um one would think that the uh, the groundwork wasn't prepared enough for a thorough, like what we've seen over the past couple of decades, because clearly I think they needed to build up that narrative of not, uh, in a way it almost helps the perpetrators of this, assuming this again is this vast conspiracy to to get America into some sort of war of terror. It helps to have the incident inciting events along the way, World Trade Center being one of them, the the embassy bombings, the coal, there's sort of a, a building up towards, and and OKC gets thrown in that mix as the spectacular act of domestic terrorism that I think also prepared the public for what they saw in 9-11. And uh, I, in a way, I don't, you're right. I mean, if, if that had happened in 93, the way we are told that Yousef had calculated for one tower to fall into the other, and who knows, 100,000 deaths or something along those lines, it certainly would have had an, a profound, incredible effect and changed the course of history as we've known it. But in what way? Would it have developed into the war of terror as we've known it? Um, clearly, it wouldn't have been the PNAC, the Project for New American Century version of the war of terror, uh, because that didn't exist in 93. So what what would it have been and, and who would have been steering it? And in what way? It would have, it would have at, the, at the very least, been a, quite a different um unfolding of events than what we saw but you're right it could have it could have taken a very drastically different turn and obviously at that point osama bin laden would not have been the boogeyman so just i'll come back to what you were saying there about how maybe the truth movement has not paid as much attention to this whole narrative as um with bombs in buildings and i can certainly understand that because if you can prove that there were bombs in building seven or if you can prove some physical thing 
it feels like well, you've made your slam dunk there and you, you've won the day. And what you meet in this intelligence kind of side of things and the geopolitical side of things is a lot of ambiguity and a lot of things that they, you add them up and they start to look like it's very definitely this, but there is some plausible, deniable explanation going in, in the opposite direction there. How have you found through your years interacting in, in the truth movement about uh, the acceptance or resistance of going down this road and how people responded to this work you've done? Well, within the truth movement itself, I would say I've seen the sort of mental horizons of the truth movement collapsing um, to the point where there is now orthodoxy in the sense, not in, I mean, obviously not in the sense that there's some sort of broad accord about the pyrotechnics of 9-11. In fact, quite the opposite. Now there are these siloed sort of theory cliques where this is what brought down the towers. And if you don't believe this, you're a shill. And so it's, effectively, of course, divided the, the movement, but also the, uh, the, the sort of the, the mental space for literally any other aspect of 9-11 has been shut down to the point where uh, there are even people within my own audience who seem to get testy, perhaps even uh, angry <laughs> that I am <laughs> covering this rather than covering the explosives. Uh, in the buildings, which is is kind of mind boggling to me, because literally that is I, I, I'm really racking my brains trying to think of um, uh, other people that are sort of prominent in the 9-11 truth space who talk about literally anything else. I mean, I know there are people like like yourself, like Adam Fitzgerald, like the uh, project for new American, the podcast for new American yeah. century guys, the, people like this are talking about it. But very few and far between, and generally speaking, not people who are getting a lot of attention. Um, it, it, it's it's mind-boggling in a way, but again, then we can start to get into this sort of Sun, Sunstein-esque conspiracy theories about the conspiracy theory, etc. Um, because that's that's where you have to, I think, at least start to speculate about how... It, 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 let's put it this way. Assuming this was some grand conspiracy to to bring about these events, clearly the perpetrators of a, a, an event that wide would would probably think about the way to control and shape the opposition to what they're doing and have various outs for the fact that certain aspects of this plot will pro probably be uncovered. And it's something that I, I heard years and years ago and zero sourcing on this. I don't take it for anything more than just hearsay, but it, it, it sort of struck a chord with me that that uh, uh, you think in 63 in Dallas, it was just that, you know, whatever took place in uh, Dealey Plaza, that was it. That was the whole plot. No, they had they had people lined up all along the parade route that could have taken them out at any time. And there would have been a different cover with a different patsy that they would have pinned the blame on. They had 17 different, you know, operations running that day. And again, I have zero way of sourcing that out. But it it seems at least plausible to me that an intelligence agency that goes to the effort of planning an event like this would not have have it all rest on one particular contingency and this is it. No, it, it could unfold in a lot of different ways in real time in the place there. And you have to have a lot of different cover for what you're doing. So you're going to have a lot of different things going on and ways to distract people and red herrings that you throw out and things that you try uh, as sort of propaganda test balloons, but no, people aren't taking that. Okay, we'll go this way. And I, I assume that is what ha has happened with the most spectacular act of terrorism in 21st century so far. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, James. For anyone who I told I was doing this interview, 
no one said anything like, oh, you must ask James about Ali Muhammad or this question or that question. The thing everyone wanted to know was what does James think of the truth movement and how we're we thinking about 9-11, not what 9-11 is, but how we're strategically thinking. Because I think there is a recognition of this siloing and this infighting and a lot of what was good at the start with the Jersey widows, that being long, long gone now, family members being long out of this. And I know you made a, a supplementary presentation, if you like, and 9-11 Truth Lessons Learned, suggesting how these patterns are just playing out in the COVID era. And when I saw that, I thought, oh, this is really good that we're talking about this now, because I'm seeing this emerge, and maybe we can you know, address that now. And, and a year later, I'm now more pessimistic. I'm now thinking, no, we don't really address it. Human beings go back to these kind of patterns of siloing. And you know, I would be very surprised if no one at the CIA had had any hand in this whatsoever castle and scene style at the same time i know what human beings are like and i've been involved in clubs groups organizations that i'm pretty certain the cia wasn't infiltrating and they still had their fair share of, yeah. of infighting yeah. and it seems like quite a difficult problem yeah. to solve because you don't want the this narcissism of small things where you think the bombs were on pillar 47b and i think they're on 48a so you sir are now persona non grata and at the same time if the tent becomes too big, too all-encompassing, then the flat earthers are inside it. Now, that might not be on the wrong side of some people's crazy line, or, or, or the zip, but everyone has that line where you say, well, these people are actually disreputable. They're, they're a bad influence on the movement, but no one can decide where that line is. So that just leads to continuous conflict, and I don't really know how to solve that problem. Richard, are you implying there were buildings? The yeah. buildings were holograms. <laughs> Everyone knows this. I can't believe it. Ah, oh, you're a shill. You're a building shill. Yeah, no, exactly right. You're exactly right. This is, I think that's an extremely important point because I don't want to simply put this on the doorstep of someone like Sunstein or some, some outside boogeyman. Although, as I say, I'm sure there has been forethought put into how to steer a truth movement that would arrive in the, or rise in the wake of this event. But you are exactly right. This, it, at, at any rate, it, it works because of human nature and mm. because of the types of patterns that people tend to fall into. And so it doesn't, I don't think it takes a great deal of ginning up and it doesn't take agents hiding under every rock and behind every corner in order to make people fall into these patterns. So how do you confront them and what is the most fruitful way of doing that? And hey, if I knew it, I would be doing that and solving all the problems, right? I, uh, I don't think it is a, a wave a magic wand and, and solve these problems kind of thing. But uh, my approach has been, and I believe will continue to be, <laughs> uh, to talk about what I think is important, to put that out on the table. I don't spend all my time thinking about talking about, whoa, you see what this guy said? This guy said something I don't like. That's stupid. Oh, yeah, this guy is a shill. Oh, this guy is a neat. I don't, I don't know why anyone would be interested in that. I, I know it, people are interested in drama and, and sort of the personal relationship dynamics of things. But that, uh, to me, as I've always said, when this starts becoming about people rather than about the information, then we've lost. Mm. Um, and it's hard to avoid that because we as humans, we are, you know, we, we, we understand human relationships and dynamics. And so we start to invest in people. Uh, rather than in the information that they are conveying or not conveying. Um, but my response to that, and however effective or ineffective it may be, it's just the way that I am 
that, that I am. It's, this is who I am. I, I just want to talk about what I want to talk about. And here it is. And here's what I've got. And here's the info. And here's a five plus hour documentary and whatever. Yeah. Um, rather than spending my time worrying about what and trying to police what other people are saying or thinking. Yeah, well, I think that and as much as there is a solution, that's as close to it as it gets, really. Conducting oneself in a way that doesn't fuel the fire further and isn't looking for for conflict. You know, so I, I think that is really conducting oneself in a sort of professional manner. You know, that you wouldn't, if you were working with people, you wouldn't go in and get involved in petty arguments in the office all day. And that kind of seems lacking sometimes. It becomes a lot of people's personality comes into it, I think. And that that's, that's fueled this. It's, it's played on that uh, human nature. What would you be happy with as an outcome of this documentary if people responded and said, what I got from it was this, James, or I started thinking about 9-11 in a new way, or I'd never thought about this issue before because I didn't like all that controlled demolition stuff, but now you've got me really thinking about it. what would make you happy in terms of people's response to this work? You know, honestly, that that would probably be the best feedback if people who don't look at this at all was suddenly interested in it because of this that that would be great i'm not really expecting that because i know that people who are the likely audience for this are going to be people who are looking for it um because for for if for no other reason than i'm not on youtube anymore and the days where a corporate report video would randomly show up on the recommended viewing bar of somebody some random person's uh youtube feed is long long since gone so generally at this point um i'm speaking to people who are looking for this information so keeping that in mind um i i, I think the uh, I, again i don't know if this is a strategic decision that i've made I, i'm not i'm not here making strategic decisions about my content and i will do this so that i can engineer people in this way it, it really is just an expression of my research interest this is something that i i think i know a bit about i have something to say here it is. And if people like it, great. If not, I hope they get something out of it. And for people, and here's here's my ultimate metric that I always use to, to measure my own work. If I was a third person, if I was not myself and I was coming across this, would I be interested in it? Would it be useful to me um, as a researcher? And so I try to structure what I do al along those principles. So that's why I have the transcript with the hyperlinks because nothing annoys me more <laughs> as someone who is a researcher nothing annoys me more than people saying oh you've got to see this documentary this is so great this is wonderful and then i go and check out the documentary and it's two hours of completely sourceless just random things that are being stated by some disembodied narrator that i don't know there's no transcript there's no sources there's no way of digging into what they're saying. I just have to take it all at face value. And I end up becoming, uh, coming away from some of these documentaries, even though I tend to agree sort of with the general tenor of what they're saying, I, I find myself actually less convinced after watching some of these documentaries because they are so shoddily put together. So all I can really measure it by is, is this useful for me as, as a researcher? And actually it ends up this sort of material ends up becoming quite useful for me because sometime down the road when i'm going to write something about al-qaeda or something along those lines i'll have to refresh my memory who is mohammed salome again oh yeah, yeah yeah and i'll go to my transcript and search it out and then i'll see oh yeah and here's the source for that and here's the source for that so again that's that's what i want ultimately is for this to be a resource for 
actual real researchers out there. And I know they're few and far between, so it's kind of weird to structure my, <laughs> my content that way, but enough people seem to get something out of it that they support the work. And then I guess that's what makes it possible in the first place. So there is some sort of virtuous circle going on. Um, but if there is some sort of grander strategic vision for this or what I want to accomplish with this type of work, yes, it ultimately changing people's minds is the number one perspective for someone who would never consider any of this to look at a documentary like this and go, wow, I, I didn't know that is the most satisfying type of feedback. But uh, secondarily, I would say for people in the 9-11 truth movement who only uh, truly do not know anything other than, hey, those buildings blew up funny. Hopefully this will get some of them involved in this entire other field of research. Whereas I say, there are people out there who are doing this type of actual real boots on the ground research who are being incredibly neglected um, up to this point. And hopefully I can start to shine some attention on this and generate some energy in that direction. So hopefully we can expand and, and maybe explore some different areas over the next 21 years of research mm -hmm. on this, or who knows, one day achieve justice, because that is the ultimate goal for this is to achieve justice for what happened on 9-11. We clearly haven't done that yet. And uh, I'm not going to say this documentary will do it, but if it in any way contributes to that ripple effect of having some effect on something that has an effect on something that contributes to justice down the line, that would be the obviously the ultimate reward. Okay, I'd really like to ask you, having done all this work, what are examples of questions that are really coming to focus on your mind about 9-11 now or the wider Al-Qaeda war on terror narrative what what are the questions that you find yourself staring into space thinking about when you're, you're typing and doing the documentary and go round and round and you can't quite resolve what, what, what kind of puzzles are there uh that, that's a good question um i guess uh, you know it is all of these 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 things that that as I say, are documentable that we know about, that we can say, we can point to definitively, but that we cannot answer, like an Ali Muhammad. Who was he? What was he doing? You know, who was running him and for what purpose? Was he double, triple, quadruple, quintuple crossing? <laughs> you know, uh, that sort of thing. It, ultimately, I, you know, we cannot say, given the amount of data that we have, but there is clearly and undeniably something there. Um, so that sort of thing. But also, um, I, I would say the question of the the hijackers, the alleged hijackers, I will say, I will go out on that limb, um, because clearly, I mean, these weren't cartoon characters that were invented out of whole cloth. There were people that were being run in this operation. To what extent, what extent do they know what kind of operation they're involved in? What extent are they willing accomplices in this? To what extent are they the drug runners or whatever was going on in Florida that we have bits and pieces of that puzzle, but that clearly doesn't add up to whatever they're saying with regards to the, the story of these Muslim hijackers. There, there's just so many question marks surrounding that, that again, I think hasn't received a lot of question, a, a lot of attention. So I think that question um, is particularly interesting. And perhaps that's, uh, well, I guess there are so many different things that you could say, if you definitively solve that, you would have the window into the plot, but that's clearly one of them. If you could definitively solve the question of who these people were and precisely how they were being manipulated, used, or were actively 
collaborating in some sort of plot and then what ultimately happened within the planes well you know obviously then you've solved 9-11 um i don't think we've gotten there yet yeah no i entirely agree with that actually, i remember we did a, an episode of adam on um ziad jara is supposedly the pilot of mm, flight 93 yeah. and i came in with thinking which ziad jara the one that was living in new york in 1995 or the one that, you know yeah. i came away again thinking big question marks 60 i don't think he was on that plane Maybe seventy percent. I I I don't know, but it's just you. I could make a probably a better case from not being on than than being on. I think, yeah. There's just a lot of mystery remains there. But we have a transcript on. of the flight recorder. I, I mean, come on. You yeah, don't the, get the, to hear it, but we have a transcript of it. it. It's um, side Al Gamdi's in the pilot seat on that, and everyone's saying free hijackers. So just these kind of mysteries that that come up, and like when Adam pointed all this out yep. to me, like, oh yeah, that's that does seem strange. Yeah, so there is a. Another question I have is looking at the kind of ways that we were thinking about 9-11 and its impact maybe 10, 15 or more years ago and the project for the new American century. How do you see that as having played out? Because I suppose we're now in the a COVID era, like there's been a fundamental shift in the world. So we have this very bellicose Republican, George Bush, neocon era, and with the plans to invade the five countries in seven years, or was it seven countries in five years? And the um, yeah. the the ideas we had about Afghanistan being about pipelines and about um, the poppy crop and this mm. kind of thing. What kind of predictions there do you think stood up about how this would all this narrative would play out? And do you think there are any that you're more no, now more doubtful of as the decades have passed? Yeah, that's a, that's actually a really good question because the war of terror has played out in some extremely bizarre and. I won't say unexpected ways, but ways that clearly weren't part of whatever people were thinking the plan was. And I mean that by in a number of different ways. For one, the whatever happened in Afghanistan last year, the complete and utter collapse of the U.S. military presence and the panicked withdrawal, and now it's abandoned, is such a bizarre sort of denouement to that story. Because I mean, I, whatever way you cut the the reasons. And I think there were multiple reasons for U.S. Uh, as a U.S. military strategic goal to occupy um, Afghanistan or have permanent bases in Afghanistan. There were multiple reasons that you could point to, but then to essentially turn tail, run, leave all this equipment and stuff in the country and go again. What plan is that serving? I mean, again, we could come up with all sorts of conspiratorial narratives about, of course, this was in in order to leave all this military equipment for the Taliban to take over so that they could give rise to the next boogeyman. Yeah, okay, I guess maybe. But was that the original plan in 2001? Really? We're going to go in and occupy the country for 20 years and then abandon it? Like, Certainly that's really what we were predicting. Game plan? Um, uh, other examples of this that I point to, Iraq. What happened with Iraq and the uh, clearly, you know, Saddam Hussein absolutely was in the crosshairs for many years, even before the project for a new American century. In the clean break document, they were saying, we've got to go in and topple Saddam in Iraq so that they can destabilize Syria, so that it was, uh, greater Israel can, you know, breathe easily. But did that turn out well for the planners of that? Because now you've got the Shia majority as as could be expected, but clearly wasn't expected, or at least not overtly expected, um, have now assumed the political driving seat in Iraq and are clearly, there are clearly Iranian Shia elements that are more uh, prominent in Iraq now um, that 
present a much greater threat. Essentially, the Iran has been bolstered by what has ha- what has taken place in Iraq. Was that part of the plan, and why, and and whose purpose did that serve? I, I, it seems to suggest to me that perhaps, I mean, to a certain extent, the the grand visionary war planners of the War of Terror and the Pinak Cabal and all of that are not all-seeing eye wizard gods who control all events. That that could be part of it. And maybe they are corrupt, inept clowns who have bought their own propaganda, essentially, and believe they really can engineer reality in any way they please. But maybe they can't. Um, that, that seems to me to be a, a plausible way of interpreting events like that. Um, but in, in a sense, maybe that's more, that's comforting in a way because mm-hmm. it shows that yeah there there is i mean they may have these grand strategic visions and w- sometimes we may get caught up in them and thinking that they really can engineer reality down to the last detail the last jot and quiver but no not necessarily maybe things continue to unfold and their plans go all all haywire and they just have to continue winging it on the fly um, in a sense, that's more comforting than to think that this is all part of the overarching plan that was written out hundreds of years ago, and they're following every single uh, detail here. Um, but if you wanted to go that route, you, I suppose, could, because the grander narrative then is that, yes, the chaos in the Middle East continues to be generated, continues to require greater and greater input, um, military and otherwise, from the outside. If they solved it all and came to some sort of um, calm status quo in which all the parts are in harmony, well, that would completely remove the justification for, say, outside military intervention in the area at all. and thereby, of course, the um, securing of the oil supplies and what have you. Again, there's so many different competing narratives here. At any rate, I think it's a lot, lot, lot messier than some people might have thought and might perhaps still believe um, with regards to the way the War of Terror was planned out and executed. Clearly, I, I don't I don't think that, the, say, the fall of Afghanistan in 2021 was part of the plan mm-hmm. in 2001. Um, I, I, I just don't think that that kind of 20 year vision really exists, um, in terms of, uh, every single detail of what's happening. So in a sense, maybe that's one of the realizations that I've come to through work like this is that, yes, what I may have thought in those years in the early two thousands at watching this unfold that, oh, clearly this is all part of the plan. Well, maybe the plan is much more amorphous and prone to being changed by the mm. course of events than some people have uh, accounted for. Yeah, and in some ways, if you don't acknowledge that, you never have any kind of falsifiable premise. Because, well, mm. if, you, if I think of a guy like Scott Horton, anti-war radio, none of this is a mystery to him. He's, he's responsible. These guys are all a bunch of status noobs, and they're just looking for the next self-sustaining bureaucracy all the time. So, of course, they go around messing up the world. Now, I can't quite go there, but if you go really far in the other direction, everything becomes, there's nothing that could not be part of the plan. So if they keep a dictator yeah. in power somewhere, that's because that's you know, it's serving American uh, corporate interests. Or if Cuba falls to Castro, well, of course they wanted that because they have to have uh, Cuba be communist so they can get the nukes there to justify the security state. So everything that happens becomes part of the new world order plan. If you go into that conspiratorial kind of lens too much, I suppose, there's no falsifiable premise to it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. And that is something that I that is something that I ponder from time to time and try to check myself on. Are there falsifiable falsifiable premises that I am putting forward? What could come out that would actually change my mind? 
on this or that issue. And that's an excellent one to ask with, say, the 9-11 conspiracy. What information could be presented to me that would make me go, oh, okay, I guess it was what it was. <laughs> I guess it was exactly what they said. And honestly, genuinely, I am hard pressed to think of what that information would be. Because you show me the picture perfect HD quality video of the plane hitting the Pentagon. Well, there you go. You know, 9-11 solved. It, it was what they said it was. I, no, I mean, obviously, I would have questions about that itself, the, the footage that's suddenly being presented out of nowhere. But then I would also have questions about um, uh, what that means in the broader picture and wh what do you think that proves? So honestly, it is something that I try to check myself with. What is the falsifiable premise here? Mm. And I don't always have a, a answer that, that satisfies myself, that I could be shown this and it would ultimately change my mind. Because as you know, and I know you've been thinking about this and talking about this, and my hat's off to you for the work that you've been doing along these lines lately. It really is valuable. It's genuinely valuable work that you're doing. But as you know, the Kuhnian paradigm uh, uh, shift does not occur because of that one piece of mm. information. Almost never will it be like, oh, there it is. I was wrong. Okay, now I'm going to be going in this direction. It has to be the accretion of yeah. so much data that you can't possibly um, you can't possibly deal with all. Oh, okay. Well, now I've been overwhelmed. And more likely, uh, I'm not sure. Probably not Kuhn, but someone has said that science, uh, the real scientific revolution, takes place through funerals. As in, yeah. you got to bury the people who believe that old stupid paradigm before you can get the people who are working with the new paradigm. Yeah, I think it's a mistake to think there's one hard falsifying thing. If I just got this fact, that would decide it one way or other. And it's also a mistake to chuck falsification out altogether and say, mm. well, I have no concept of what would possibly in any way falsify any theory I have. So there's two kind of extremes that I think you, it's good to tread. Can a, I, a okay, let between. me turn the tables because I'm an interviewer. So let me, uh, let me interview you. Well, ODM, what is that's your fine. falsifiable premise around 9-11? What would, what could be shown to you that would fundamentally change whatever it is that you think about the events of 9-11 falsifying it in terms of it being an inside job or falsifying it in terms well of what i don't know what your premise is actually i do you think it is an inside job i think so I, i'm sorry to be long-winded but i i don't think me waving a placard in the air is a good way to convince anyone because there's a whole bunch of things i'm not expert in so what i always say is look i can I can certainly explain every aspect of it as if it wasn't. I can I, I can explain the flip theory that they were trying the, the CIA were trying to flip those two guys that came in the country. I can explain how the twin towers came down by the the steel beams bowing in the center and pulling the side in. Um, however, I can also explain why the flip theory is probably not true. Okay, and I come down on that side of the line because if you really go into Tom Wilshire's emails at Alex Station, they don't really make sense. And then he's over at the same time, the same guy is the one who's um, suppressing Sakurai Masawi's laptop. And there's all this, uh, it, there's another lens you could look at this through where it starts to make a lot more sense. And that is that the people actually wanted this to happen. It was being guided into place because that's that's just what a segment of people in society are like. They don't consider us to be in the in-group with them. We are an out-group uh, as to them. So that's how they can, they can do these things. And, and the same with the towers. So regarding falsifying that, um, I would say that Yes, it could be if someone could explain like, no, there's a better premise of this where uh, it, it really is just. So it would be hard to prove, wouldn't it? It's hard to prove it's not. Yeah, if, that's if, the thing, yeah. because, yeah, I, I could I could understand that that, you know, it was them just trying to flip these guys or whatever, and it went wrong. But how would you ever prove that to mm. me? What? Yeah. 
what evidence could you show me along those lines that I would accept at face value? Oh, here's a document. It's signed by George Tenet saying, you know, flip these guys. Oh, okay. I believe that. <laughs> you know, I yeah, mean, what, I think what you would could, be the actual evidence? I don't think you could probably disprove. I think you could um, probably take away the reasons for thinking it made more sense. Okay. Like if Tom Wilshire came out and did an interview yeah. and explained all his actions, which obviously like, you know, there's more chance of Santa Claus being real than that. But if that, <laughs> if that happened and he accounted for, look, this is why I thought it was a good idea to not open Zacharias laptop. And you're like, oh my God, this guy's just an idiot or something. He's just completely incompetent. That then that would kind of take like to really think that, well, you know, like with the torture program. So I've, I've said, look, I don't believe they, they thought torture was a way of getting information out of people. Okay, because there's just a hundred year history of that obviously not working. Like Mark Twain's writing about it when the US Army are torturing Filipinos back in that war. So the idea that these expert interrogators at the CIA have just missed all that. I mean, come on. But I could meet them, right? And you find out that actually these people are just completely self-absorbed, narcissistic. They don't read a darn thing about the history of anything. And they're just that's just what they and, and under those circumstances, then yes, I would say potentially I would considerably open up to the view that they thought this was the way to go now I, i'm not there i'm not i would likely to be there but under those kind of things yeah maybe if i found out that the, there was incompetence say and um self-serving um promotional ambitions just explained so much more of their actions that 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 could be a thing yeah I, 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 again, I understand sort of the, the, uh, the, uh, the concept of what you're putting forward, but I want, I, you know, I'm trying to think of the actual operational details, especially because as, for example, I put in the documentary, things like, um, when seeing isn't believing or whatever that, uh, that particular article was, it was titled, I believe it was the Washington Post 2000 or 1999, I think where they were talking about, you know, the, the various technologies that were, when seeing and hearing isn't believing because they were talking about technologies for um uh creating audio copies of people's voices so that they could fake their voices which at this point in 2022 is hardly revelatory but in 1999 talking about the uh, the classified briefings that were being given where they were showing these generals hey here's your voice saying you know my captors are treating me well as they did with colin powell um and it hey it sounds like me and to the point where one of the generals is like can i take the, that recording that's that's incredible um and and so so you imagine all sorts of pieces of evidence that could come out that okay you know here's this audio tape confession here's this videotape of this thing happening but we are we truly are at the point where i don't know if we can ever put 100 percent faith okay. in the well, no i don't well, i mean could could you do that then with even the flat earth to a point okay so what, what i think you're doing what i'm doing is i'm never really saying i am now 100 percent confident that this is reality and that isn't mm. i'm contrasting two different theories okay and i can yeah. look at, say the flat earth and the round yeah. earth and say well there's this model that explains all the heavenly phenomenon and blah, 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 and why it's daylight where you are and not where yeah. I am. Uh, so therefore, I'm opting for this bar, you know, God coming down and saying, no, it really is flat. And the same with 9-11. I find the inside job right. narrative more compelling, and I could come to find it less compelling, but I don't yeah. think it would ever be. So I think what there. we are coming down to is that paradigm shift concept which is not mm. about a single data point. It is not about a piece of evidence. It is about the overall, whether or not you were convinced that this model more accurately maps onto reality. And the way to do that in a scientific sense, I think is 
slightly more straightforward. This model predicts this. Let us test that, that novel thing that we haven't tested before. Let's test and see if that's true. That, I mean, wow, wouldn't that be awesome if we could do that in this messy mm. geopolitical intelligence space? Well, this, uh, now we can predict that Ali Muhammad will da 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 da. I mean, again, it's, I think, unfortunately too messy for that. So we don't get the satisfaction of that. But I think you're right. It is about sort of the overwhelming evidence convinces me this or convinces me of that um, rather than any data point in particular. I think so. And yeah, predictions are well. I'm just thinking that all the people that said Putin was going to invade Ukraine because he's an expansionist czar wannabe, and all the people that said Putin's going to invade Ukraine because NATO is encroaching and he's going to feel like he's being pushed over a cliff, they're all claiming they're right now. And that's why it's happened. So I'm more <laughs> interested in the people who didn't who said Putin isn't going to. Well, yeah, no, that's yeah. stupid. And now continue to think that they were right, even though they were wrong. And hey, I put my hand up on that. Yeah, I didn't. I thought it was you know, U.S. bluster. They're just, uh, oh, wait, he really is going to invade. OK, well, that, I have to rethink things. I obviously had something wrong in my epistemology there. Let's think about that. Um, these are the, yeah, there are, I guess, certain sorts of experiments in a sense that we can run in the real world on these things to test our hypotheses. Um, but do we do we really stop and consider when we are demonstrating demonstrably wrong about what we think about the world, or do we just fit it back into the narrative? Yeah. Well, well, no, the answer is no, typically we don't. We should fit it back into the narrative, so that's you know, very good to be conscious of it. <laughs> I will let everyone answer that for themselves. I won't presume to answer it for them. <laughs> Maybe that's a good point to conclude or start to wrap up with putting that question out there and yeah, inviting anyone to reflect what are, what are their answers on it. Yeah. Okay. And let me once again give the hat tip to the work that you've been doing along these lines. It's interesting stuff because uh, I like the approach you're taking. Um, uh, yeah. Thank you. Dismantling really, yeah, the, uh, the uh, was it uh, Chandler and uh, David Chandler? Yeah. I forget who wrote that that, that Moon um, mm. piece. But as you say, the point isn't whether or not I find this argument convincing. It's whether or not they are going in the right direction with this? Are they presenting information that will actually persuade anyone of their point of view? Or are they simply saying things that, well, we know this to be right and everyone else should too. Why don't you? Um, yeah, these are sorts of the interesting questions. Your, your recent interview on Skeptico, fascinating conversation. Again, whatever you, whatever side of the line you come down on that kind of debate, the fact that you guys were talking about that and the way that you talked about it, it's fascinating to watch. And I don't know, this is, this, in a sense, is the most valuable part of all of this, is trying to figure out what did, why do we believe what we believe? And can we, can, be, can we be convinced otherwise? Clearly, I can, because I was, I did not consider, I certainly didn't even countenance 9-11 truth in 2001, 2, 3, 4, 5. But 2006, I sure did. What the hell happened? How did that happen? I was convinced by an overwhelming body of evidence. Could I be reconvinced back the other way? I suppose I could. I mean, it, I know it's possible to change my mind, but what would what would it take? But in a sense, now that I'm 15 years deeper into this research and know much, much, much more in more granular detail than I did back then, it's going to take even more evidence to try to convince me that, no, no, you're completely on the wrong path here, James. It will take, in, in, the more you know about something, the more evidence it will take to convince you that you're you're wrong, I think. Yeah. 
Well, that, I mean, this is what I think is, is key to me. There's a great value in thinking about how we're thinking about these things. And we don't spend enough time really doing that. We just go on and think about it without considering method. So I'm, I'm actually having a bit of a dialogue with David Chandler at the moment about the moon landing thing. And it's, it's interesting because he, he just looks at the whole question much more like a scientist. You know, and no, it's all about the scientific facts. And I know it's about the philosophy. I'm sure we sort of wind each other up equally. So it's, it's, it's really yeah, interesting to, to engage with. Okay. Thank you very much. Indeed, James. Just say where people can watch the, the documentary on the CorbettReport.com, obviously, is the best place to go for it, isn't it? Yes, CorbettReport.com slash Al-Qaeda, A-L-Q-A-E-D-A, is the place to go for the entire documentary transcript, downloads, it's all there. And as I say, this is, if nothing else, it is meant for researchers who are genuinely interested in getting deeper into this material. I hope it will help them do that. Thank you very much, James. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. Details of James's series as well as his wider work is available in the info box. And if you're listening on James's channel, details of my podcast are available there too. And I would very much appreciate you checking that out. Thank you.